Hello, this is David Bernstein. I'm the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Welcome to this edition of the SpeechCast. I'm joined today with uh, Dr. Monica Osborne, who is a scholar in residence for the Jewish Institute, but also uh, the, an editor of Jewish Journal and uh, curator of the speech project of the Jewish Journal. Um, we, we have with us a very special guest, Dr. Martin Gock, who is a, a philosopher by training, a journalist in practice, um, somebody I've had the opportunity to hear through Monica actually on Clubhouse. And I was really taken by the depth of analysis. And I felt like, I think I might've um, messaged you, Monica. I think I said next level. So, um, so that, that's exactly uh, what we're here to do is to really go into some depth. Uh, this is of course a, a, a Jewish podcast. So uh, it is, it, Martin, you are Jewish, is that correct? I am, I am. Okay. I mean, from uh, on, on all the right extensions and measurements and from all the right sort of parts of the, parts of the, of the genealogical tree. Yeah, so you're from Argentina. I was, I was born and raised in Argentina, and I, uh, when I was 18, I moved to the U.S. Uh, to basically to study. I landed in a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts and spent the next four years there. Then I spent about two in Europe between France and Germany. Uh, I was studying philosophy, so this was the place, these were the places you, where you did the pilgrimage to. And then I went back to get my Ph.D. in at the New School uh, in New York. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my adult life was spent uh, in the U.S. And I think that it's fair to say that my uh, moments of, say, coming of age, political coming of age, happen deep within the, the, the American political beast. So we are at a very uh, striking ideological moment, not just in the U.S., but probably throughout the West. Um, how would you characterize this ideological moment? I mean, I think that what we are seeing across the board, um, at least as far as the West goes, uh, and by this I mean, you know, certainly the US, Canada, Europe, uh, but also, you know, Latin America, uh, capital cities, which are very much defined by the political trends of the US and Europe and so on is, what you see essentially uh, is, is, a, is a, a structure of deep polarization. And this deep polarization has sort of a variety of flavors. Um, the deep polarization that you see in the US uh, and is one that is really spreading because the US has the tendency to very powerfully export its, its ideological products and cultural, and cultural machinery uh, is one that cuts very much along the lines of um, you know, what, what you now can call in the US progressivism and, uh, and conservatism. I mean, the type of progressivism that you see in the US is not necessarily a type of progressivism that is recognizable in other latitudes. And certainly the type of conservatism that you see in the US is not uh, the one that you would see in other latitudes. But this kind of, this, this, this cleavage that has produced such a profound divide in the political waters is one that in some version or other, with some of these elements or other, you can see pretty much any way, anywhere you go. Um, so I think that this is sort of the core of the issue that we're facing, including the one that sort of brings us here, which is a question of, you know, woke politics. So 
how would you describe woke politics? What are you seeing? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, um, what we have, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is a perfect storm uh, or a perfect the alignment of, of a set of forces uh, that have produced essentially an ideological doctrine. This ideological doctrine has uh, no one particular substantive element. So, I mean, one day is anti-racist and the next day is, uh, you know, anti-rape and the next day is, I mean, it just has this sort of ongoing uh, fluidity, I suppose, is the word that we can use. It's, it's so much in vogue. Uh, I think that what it has more than a substantial question about, you know, what is the, 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 the ideological, specific ideological content, it has, um, it has a mechanic that is the one that worries me and that is the one that really travels across all of these different uh, uh, doctrinal positions. So when it comes down to, you know, transgender issues or when it comes down to the idea of, you know, white privilege or when it moves on to the question of like anti-black racism or when it, in every one of these cases, what it has is, I think, essentially a strong aversion to um, evidence, and a very strong commitment to dogmatic and doctrinal positions. That is to say, white men are X or Y. White men are essentially morally deficient in this, in this thing. And, and I think that it's fair to say that that is fairly stable of a trope throughout these different issues. So white men are a problem not only for, you know, black people are also a problem for sort of, you know, uh, Latino children trapped in like sort of border uh, detention camps. They're also a problem in police abuse case of Native Americans. They're also a problem with women in the Me Too, problem, uh, Me Too uh, um, uh, movement, all of these things have this sort of white man element or the moral deficiency of the white man in common. Uh, this thing is not something that is obviously liable to falsification. You cannot debate that because white man obviously is almost a metaphysical category. I mean, white man includes, you know, presumably you, me, I suppose, I mean, for these standards and white, uh, Argentinians were never Latinos enough. So, I mean, obviously I am, I am white, at least an honorary white. Uh, it includes my father, the ghost of my grandfather. It includes my next door neighbor. I mean, it, it's, an ins it's a complete senseless, senseless category. This is the reason, and we probably will get into this, but this is the reason why we talk about structural uh, structural matters are in structural injustices because it's, it's the spirit that runs in the crowd, right? You cannot point to it. You cannot really find it anywhere in particular. It's everywhere. Uh, so this is also the reason why you are, you're all constantly being demanded self-assessment. I think that this is essentially a religious proposition. Uh, as such, it's not falsifiable. And essentially the, the challenge to that doctrine is either an act of apostasis. So obviously this is the reason why we have, you know, people running around with, with pitchforks and, and, and digital torches, uh, you know, and there are all these sort of political conflagrations. But I think that the other possibility is essentially that um, the doctrine is really just accepted. So there is no space for the liberation here. There is no space for asking the question, hey, 
but is it really the case that white men all have privilege and white men are all so on and so forth? And you can say this about really anything, cisgender, Jews, because Jews, of course, also have the Argentinian problem. They're not good enough. They're not good enough to be dark, but they're not bad enough to be white, right? So, I mean, it is this very strange place in which we find ourselves. Um, and I think that this is a thing that reproduces itself out at nauseam. So you have a power structure which has developed. Now, I want to be very clear. The reason why I started by pointing out that I think that this belongs to an economy of polarization is because I think that it has all the markings of the ugliest parts of right-wing politics in the US and abroad. So, I mean, these are, these are twins separated at birth, but now living under the same political roof. So I should say that we are in three different time zones. Um, I'm in Washington, D.C. It is 11.40 p.m. You're in Berlin, Germany. In Berlin. It is 5.40 a.m. And Monica, you're in Vancouver, and it is 8.40 p.m., right? So, yes. <clears throat> so, Martin, you know, what is it like in Germany? I've been told, by the way, that this is really an ailment of the English-speaking countries. Are you are you seeing this in Germany to the same extent as you might see it, let's say, in the UK or in Australia or New Zealand? Well, I think for a variety of reasons, I mean, you're having a pretty serious backlash in Europe. And I mean, the, the last one, the latest one in Germany took place over the last uh, 48 hours or 72 hours when uh, Somebody presented as a, so the, the newspapers were presenting him as a historian, a, a German history expert who just wrote uh, a piece for a, a German, German language, uh, Swiss paper uh, saying that, uh, so this is, by the way, this is somebody that uh, is presented as an expert in genocide and colonialism and racism and, and all the isms, uh, you know, just presented a, um, this article in which he claims that Germany uh, must change the way that it thinks of uh, the Holocaust. And it demands essentially that the Holocaust be thought in the context of anti-colonialism and anti-racism discourses, and that you know Germany has to abandon, as a matter of institutional position, is something that Germany has for very good reasons. The idea that uh, the Holocaust was uh, an absolutely sui generis uh, episode that had uh, completely, uh, completely. Uh, um, uh, what is it? Completely, um, so non-comparable, non-comparable categories of evil. That was something that happened essentially in a way that made it an exceptional form of evil or an exceptional form of violence. So basically, the demand is now that you know this thing be put in the context of angry studies, angry studies positions as far as as far as. Uh, um, questions of, of social and political violence goes. At the same time, what it does is uh, he says that it is important for Germany to recast Nazism as simply one episode in the context of historical unfolding. So, I mean, the way that that sounds to the German ears uh, is essentially as a straight out denial of you know, the paramount evil that the elimination of 12 million people, 6 million of them Jews, uh, 
you know, amounts to. So when you're listening to these things, it becomes very clear that it can come in Germany from one of two places. And this is actually very, very strange. It was pointed out in the, in the, in the paper uh, Die Welt yesterday, which is either this came from the far, far right, which is neo-Nazis that are essentially trying to, you know, water down the question of Nazism and, and the history of the Holocaust and the type of violence, uh, or, we're dealing essentially with something that comes from this new strange Anglo-American left. That's not exactly how they put it, the Anglo-American left. They just said the left. Um, but I think that the point stands, which is that, you know, there is some new concoction that is actually brewing this kind of ideas. Now, uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time reading about, uh, you know, Second World War politics or essentially 19, 1920s to 1945. And I will grant that, you know, uh, it is absolutely central uh, to be able to rethink sort of these questions of violence in context of political, the political unfoldings that we're seeing. Obviously, the way in which we think about these things and the way that anti-Semitism uh, has been thought until now. Uh, so for instance, in the context of Israeli politics and sort of the incidence of Israeli politics on Europe is something that needs to evolve and needs to look at itself in a critical manner. The idea that sweepingly you can come in and say, well, you know, this is really just one more case of colonialism and one more case of racism. And it's really just the white man looking at it. it it's completely absurd. Now, this is done from, you know, the very top of the academic system. The guy turned out to be, and I, I never got to that, but the guy turned out to be an Australian professor. So this thing is not brewed inside Europe. This thing, once again, seems to be an import of Anglo-American academic systems. And I think that when you look at the way in which the American public sphere has actually seen these things emerge, they are indeed coming more often than not from what I like to call angry studies department or what, what Harold Bloom used to call a, um, a resentment, I believe, ressentiment studies, right? I mean, I think that it's, it's fair to say that the greatest discovery, and, 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 and I put a lot of the onus of this on, on feminists, really, uh, the great discovery is that suffering is an enormous political asset. And, you know, what we have now is a set of uh, doctrinal machinery, I mean, sitting inside academia, that is producing an endless, endless stock of this kind of narratives of political suffering, of, of oppression, which can then be brought, you know, out into Europe or can be brought out into like Nebraska and people can be not only browbeaten with that, but, you know, political structures can be set up. Uh, Europe has a lot less tolerance because a lot of what's coming with it is, you know, deweeding libraries, like throwing away works of art, uh, you know, canceling uh, authors, uh, demanding that comedians step down from so on and so forth, which in the US has become absolutely sort of commonplace. I mean, you don't even like blink, a, blink an eyelash for this stuff. Here is still a major issue. And it's also incidentally, like in the US, it's also feeding the far right. Mm. Monica. Yeah. Um, so, you know, two of the things you said, Martin, that I find um, ex extremely troubling um, when you characterized uh, this, this far left ideology, you said something about an aversion to evidence. 
And it just seems to me that an aversion to evidence reveals how ridiculous all of this is, right? An aversion to evidence, right? How can anybody take that seriously, especially academics, right? And you've started to talk right. a little bit about how all of this is, you know, essentially if you're talking about Germany or Berlin, all of this has been imported from um, Anglo academic systems, right? And then the other thing you said that, you know, I, I've thought the same thing and I've said the same thing, but the other way you characterized it is, you know, as a, as a kind of religion, right? There are, um, you know, so many different religious components to this. So we've got an aversion to evidence combined with, um, you know, what, what is really becoming a kind of religion of sorts. And what that means, and as you've already hinted, is that you can't challenge it, right? You can't, we can't come up against it. So I guess my big question, and, you know, Martin, you and I come from uh, similar backgrounds. We both have philosophy backgrounds within academia, um, you know, and both of us are no longer officially in academia. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit more about how this took shape in academia or where, where you think it came from and how you think it escaped the academy and went, you know, flying through the streets, um, you know, to the point that it's created not, not just a movement, but an entire cultural sensibility um, that really can't be challenged. I mean, I think I think you're right in almost everything you said, uh, with one exception, which is you said this is ridiculous, uh, and I think that the beauty of it and the monstrosity of it is that not only is not ridiculous, uh, it is foolproof. Because the point is that when you make statements that escape the possibility of independent adjudication, that is to say, you know, if I say there is an elephant in the room next door, uh, essentially the condition, the condition of possibility of that statement being true is that there is indeed an elephant in the room next door. If there is no elephant, the statement is false. But if I say something like all white men are evil, or if I say something like, you know, cisgender normativity, uh, defines defines our sexual preferences. Or if I say there is no such thing as a female brain and a male brain, I mean, uh, and and the, the the categorical force of that is that there is no such. Well, I mean, what am I supposed to do? To go out and basically find out through every single brain? I mean, we we have the problem of you know. Of, of neuromapping and actually accounting for a specific forms. I mean, we have a lot of evidence that there is a female brain to, to some degree and that there is a male brain or that there are at least characteristics that are sufficient to say that a brain is, you know, so, so there is genderification of, of the brain. But I mean, these are statements that by and large defy the possibility of offering evidence because to the statement of all white men are evil, there is nothing that can be answered. There is quite literally nothing that can be answered. So this is actually very much the way in which these mechanisms operate like religious items, which are first and foremost articles of faith. You're not required to know, you're required to confide, you're required to believe in that article of faith. And that article of faith exonerates you from having to not only give evidence, but to actually give sufficient reasons, because that item of faith is a sufficient reason. 
I'm going to fight, fight cisgender, whatever, because white men or cis normative, blah, 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 are evil. So the point of the moral deficiency at the core of the characterization is the one that really escapes this. I mean, we're basically doing, as a common friend of ours put it, I mean, Kevin Hauser, we're just doing really crappy metaphysics. Now, I don't think that this is by accident at all. I think that this has actually two very specific reasons. And there are two reasons why it is an American phenomenon. The first one is that the US is a profoundly religious and magically oriented country. There is a very strong commitment to uh, the magical power of words. So names are really, uh, are really something that are escaped or something that are worshiped. This is sort of very evident when you look at the debates around, uh, you know, around um, um, pronouns and the debates about with what kind of letter, I mean, do you write the word black, right? I mean, I was very recently accused of not writing black with a capital letter, which I thought was absolutely hysterical. I mean, it just, you know, there is somebody out there that really thinks that sort of the spelling of the word has a reflection on reality as if it were, we're talking about an incantation. I mean, it's absolute madness. These are adults making these claims, right? And, and, and by the way, I mean, this is supposed to be some sort of response or one of the many arsenals to respond to fundamental problems in policy. I mean, it, it, it's completely crazy. You look at these things and you think like, who the hell is in charge of this discussion? That on the one hand, I think that the other thing that happens uh, and that makes this such a such a comprehensible uh, a phenomenon is that this has really ultimately nothing to do with improving the lot of the black community. It has nothing to do with like improving the lot of women. I mean, this has really just to do with the with the construction and the the, the, the crystallization of structures of power. And these structures of power, the transference of power from, you know, traditional spaces, for instance, of expertise. And we talked about this, David, a couple of days ago. I mean, the movement from knowledge or the, the claim of knowledge from space of expertise to this new, uh, this new, um, you know, this new holders of, of, of titles of moral authority is absolutely visible. I mean, you can see this, you know, every single day where you had in, in areas that I am very familiar with, uh, you have had, for instance, in neuroscience, you have had the emergence of what I like to call neuro ketchup in the angry studies department. So you have like some woman who just went to like, you know, the gender studies took one class in psychology and now is explaining neuroscience sort of, you know, a gen gendered neuroscience in some women's studies department. But over the last five or six or 10 years, that woman, or, you know, the, the, we have now a very, very uh, well-known case of, uh, of, um, of an Indian American psychiatrist who has been calling for shooting white people or talking about how she needs to repress her need to. I mean, these people, where, and she's probably a wonderful example because what we have there is basically somebody that has expertise in questions of, uh, you know, on, uh, of um, uh, sociopathologies, sociopathic behavior. That's expert on sociopathic behavior, who actually exhibits nothing but sociopathic behavior. And her sort of sociopathic, sociopathic supposed expertise has actually led her to present herself and to be certified as an expert in the area. 
So the moment that you have actually this, this movement of somebody that does neuro ketchup into the neuroscience department, then you actually have had the completion of the revolution. What I think as philosophers would recognize in the Nietzschean corpus as the rebellion of the slaves. By the way, right? just and so you know, I'm a philosophy grad as well. So it's okay. Good to so this is, this is a disaster, guys. <laughs> we should really just. Right. We might have it's to. Title Otherwise, I'll be bringing out the wine right now. It's <laughs> great. I have some stories for you, but for another time. Um, Monica, can you want to? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I just want to go back to to one thing. You know, uh, when you talked about again, I'm going to go back to this um, aversion to evidence, um, and then you you use the example of, you know, all all white men are evil, right? That that can't really be proven or disproven. There's nothing you could do with that statement. But I think that under that large umbrella, there's not just an aversion to evidence or statements that can be proven. There's a falsification of evidence in many in many cases. Um, you know, or if it's not a falsification, it's a, a, a willful misreading or misinterpretation or misrepresentation of evidence. So, um, you know, I always hear John McWhorter talk about the fact that um, you know the numbers of black men who are killed by the police in the United States is, um, is lower than the number of white men killed each year right. by, by police. So, you know, and of course, you know, if you think though about, you know, if, if um, black people make up only 13% of the American population, which I, I think is what it is, um, you know, statistically, you know, there's still more, you know, so we, we can play with the numbers, we can say all sorts of things, but um, the fact is that there, there is a kind of misrepresentation of data. And, you know, this isn't, again, this isn't just typical non-academic people doing this. This is, this is coming from the top, so to speak. This is sure. coming from universities and institutions of higher learning and education that should know better, right? These are the places that are supposed to sure, safeguard yeah. and protect um, authentic representations of data and evidence and yet we're seeing the opposite well i mean i think you know in, in some sense you answer your your own question i mean i would say you're completely correct i think that as a matter of fact i mean the story of uh black confrontations with with police is is, is uh, you know stunning i mean i've been following this story for about 15 to 20 years so i mean i have almost yearly or yearly numbers uh, and I can tell you that if there are a set of three numbers that to me have always been the most interesting ones, is that the raw numbers uh, give the highest, the highest number of victims in encounters with police in the US as white people, white men mostly. Um, the second number that to me is remarkable is that in part per million, so I mean, you know, the, the per capita count is really Native Americans that have the highest death in encounters with the police. And as far as sort of general demographic, general demographic denominators go, the highest number of people that actually die in the hands of police are psychiatric patients. Mm. So I'm not even touching on the question of class. Right. Which a, there, and there are other issues too, by the way, uh, including age. The average age of a white person in America is 58 years old. The average age of a black person in America is 27 years old. So just on that, you can imagine how that would affect 
the crime statistics on that alone. Um, and even by the way, when you control for um, when when you control for the actual numbers of, of African-Americans still, it seems that uh, white people are killed in just about the same number of confrontations with the police as, as black people are killed. Um, I mean, you know, the things that you have to add when you, when you start dealing with this is that uh, the U.S. is a sort of fully loaded, fully loaded country. So in a lot of these interactions that end up with cases of fatality, and I'm no fan of the American police, let me just be absolutely clear. I think that right. I don't know any other, any other police department in the world, including the Argentinian police department, which I grew up being thoroughly scared of. Uh, I know no other police system in the world that needs more of a reform than the American system. I mean, yeah. it's, it's an absolute yeah. catastrophe. And I, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, this is the inheritance of, you know, the crossing of the Rubicon of all these people that were fighting outside and all the material. Now, the point is, uh, the point is, when you actually start including all these elements and including all these variables, sort of the guns, I mean, the Philando Castell story in, in, in Minnesota, I believe it was, it was a very telling one. I mean, the reporting of that and the way that it was presented was that the guy was an arm. That's not true. The guy had a gun inside the car. Now, what is that happening in that confrontation? We don't really know. And there are strong reasons to suppose that there was misbehavior on the part of the police. That being said, there was a gun in the place. Right. So the thing is, you know, I, as I said, I haven't even put class, socioeconomic class. <coughs> Sorry, this is just for the tight guys. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, when you bring class into the, into the equation and you look at socioeconomic placement of victims, then obviously you have one more layer that actually helps you to explain the way that the, the sorry, we have a cuckoo here. I love it. So you're hearing it. So it helps you to explain the way in which these deaths are distributed. Now, as we, and I think, I, I don't know if we agree on this, but my impression continues to be that the reason why America likes to talk so much about color is that it's an excellent way not to have to think about class. So it paints over class. Yes, you can make basically Condoleezza Rice or you can make, you know, O.J. Simpson and his team of super lawyers uh, into victims, into victims of oppression, while, you know, Bobby, who is playing the banjo in Appalachia and has absolutely no access to food or dentistry or medical services or education, that guy's the oppressor who is actually the bearer of privileges. Uh, so this is something that anybody, I mean, I, I'm certainly no Marxist, but anybody that was, you know, dealt a book of Marx during his teenage years would most likely look at this and say, you people are totally out of your mind. Mm. Right? So, so, so right. your cuckoo clock went off and it reminded me of something I heard Jonathan Haidt say the other day. He said, critical race theory is cuckoo. And by that, I don't mean that it is crazy. I mean, it is like the cuckoo bird and it will displace other birds from its nest. Um, and, and, it, and it strikes me that you can talk about the ideological assertions of critical theory and all these various manifestations of critical social justice and the like. But what we really are coming down to is sort of this epistemological assertion, since we're all philosophers here, right? Epistemological assertion that 
um, that only those with lived experience have the standing to make claims. That's the cuckoo bird in a way saying, you all have no standing. You all must be quiet. You must defer to us who do have standing because of our particular lived experience. And that ultimately, that's what we have to contend with is that underlying claim that um, you only get to speak if you have that lived experience. What, what's your sense of that? I think you're completely right. I think that, you know, to put it in a religious context, I think that the God of the gaps, it's always a God of usurpation, always. It's an usurpation of knowledge, right? So, I mean, the place in which you cannot fill it with like a scientific account of cause and effect, what you go do is you go out and you go, oh God. So, you know, one of the best ways to sort of keep God in business if you, what you have is mainly a God of the gap is to keep science out of business. So what you say is like, well, you know, who knows why the tides go up and down? Most likely it's God. Somebody comes in and says, well, look, I mean, there is this thing, the moon, it floats around the earth. It actually pulls. So what you do is you grab that guy, you take him to the central square, you put him on a stake, you light it up and you have another 50 or 60 years of being the one that gets to stand in the pulpit and explain sort of the tides through God, through your invisible friend. I think that here you do have something that works very much in the same way. What you have is like, you know, I don't know if you guys follow the case of Adolf Reed. Adolf Reed is somebody that I find uh, absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's really, uh, if, if I have a, a, an American left-wing hero, is that one. He's a sociologist, he taught at the New School and then he moved on to uh, a much, much better uh, operation. Uh, I think it was at Penn State. Um, and he's basically, you know, an old, uh, honest to goodness, extremely, extremely smart um, Marxist. He happens to be black and he happens to be very much involved or was involved for many years with uh, worker movements of the, in different manners, but mostly as an intellectual uh, in New York. About a year and a half ago, he was actually pushed out of uh, the workers' circle, if I'm not mistaken, uh, of New York. I mean, so this is an old essentially Marxist organization in which he was accused of being a class reduction reductionist who denied, I mean, who denied, you know, the, the importance and the fundamental uh, explanatory power of race. You can imagine who pushed him out, right? I mean, correct me if, if that's the wrong if that's the wrong organization. I might have I might have mis, mis, uh, misremember that, but. The fact that you can grab a guy that essentially, so he committed one cardinal sin and the cardinal sin to me was actually a fairly brilliant observation, which was the moment that you declare the white worker an enemy, you're, the, you're, you're depriving the black worker and he put it in a way that was much more elegant than what I'm doing, but you're, the, you're, you're uh, depriving the black worker of class solidarity across so, you know, across races. Now, obviously, this is not my political fight. That's not my ideological positioning. Mm. I think that there is something very important about collective bargaining and so on. But I mean, intuitively, one would listen to this and say, hey, that's a great point. Right. Obviously, race warriors decided that this was apostasy. And he was quite literally, what, what is the term that they use, uh, uh, deplatformed. <laughs> he was pushed out of, I mean, it, 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 it's madness. I mean, it's true madness, right? So <clears throat> what you have when you see that kind of thing is precisely the idea that, you know, here comes an explanation that has a lot more 
predictive and explanatory power, then everything is race. Because obviously, if everybody's a racist and everything is racism, then nothing is racism. Mm. Right? We don't have any, I mean, any way to sort out any of these things. Right. So, you know, you grab this guy that comes in with an explanation that has more predictive power and probably has more uh, uh, clinical power politi in political terms. And what you do is you take him out, you take him to the, to the you know, you take him to the, to the court and you light up the stake and you declare him basically an enemy of the race, not of the class, as it would have been done under, you know, Stalinism or it would have been done under forms of communism, but he's an enemy of the race and of all things that are good and decent, obviously. So now what you guarantee yourself is that that space is now free for more racial, critical racial theory explanations. So I think that this goes to Monica's point concerning evidence, which is to some extent also the point that you're making about the epistemology of the woke movement, is that there is absolutely no commitment or interest in the question of evidence. And you can talk about this in every single area. When they tell you about, when, when I read, for instance, about literature, I mean, this disrupt texts project, which basically claims that, you know, Candy, Candy's uh, anti-racist baby would be a fit replacement for, for Othello. I mean, this is something that can only be said if you are blind and you have never read or been read sort of either work, or if you're truly committed to making a case of something that is patently false. Now, we can talk in a minute about the effect that that has on education, which I think it's devastating because I think that this is really a form of absolute cultural destruction. I mean, I think that this is essentially the promotion, the purposeful promotion of illiteracy. When you have people telling you that what kids should be reading in, in, in you know, uh, inner city Chicago are stories that are only about inner city Chicago, because everybody else is a racist, what you're saying is that those kids will have absolutely, for the time that they spend in that classroom, and if this gets reproduced through the system, the time that they spend in school, they will have no access to universal literature. They will never know what a Greek is. They will never know what an amphora is. They will never know why the Achaeans were running to the port. They will never know what was the force of the gods in this conception of the world. They, they, these things, I mean, the Paris of, and, and don't give me Baldwin to explain the crap that Kendi's doing, because Baldwin was actually living in Istanbul and living in Paris. These bastards are not only sort of living within the idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's this American parochialism that reduced even more, reduced to a bubble of racial purity in a context in which people should have no escape and see no space of escape, right? So there is nothing beyond this thing. You continue to tell the story of yourself. And I think that these things are not only extremely dangerous for those of us who are very committed to education, very committed to literacy, they also basically show you, once again, I think, that, that the commitment to the construction of power. This is really, really the, 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 the you know, Napoleon taking the pups in, in, in Animal Farm, taking the pups out into somewhere and then coming back sort of sometime later with the pups grown up into mastiffs essentially, who then go on to like, you know, rip the throat of the, of the rebelling hens. I mean, mm. this is the Orwell, this is the Orwell story. The pups are the ones that are taken away. And that's how the power is construction constructor for the return of Napoleon. Mm. The, the hog. So mm. these things I find 
very disturbing. And I find them extremely disturbing as they start to move out of the US and come in this direction. Because mm. now the attacks in Europe are against Beethoven, against Mozart, against obviously every literary figure, against Heine, against like everybody that has written, everybody that has composed, every monument, every museum, every building. Mm. Yeah. So, go ahead. Go ahead yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, the cost of this for, for children and for young people is this tremendous shrinking of their worlds, right? Their worlds become smaller and smaller and smaller. And like you said, they keep, you know, what happens is just the story of the self gets repeated over and over and over. And, you know, learning, learning stops when that happens. I mean, look, I think that you and I are probably very lucky people. I mean, I myself grew up in a, in a, an extremely cosmopolitan and world-looking household. I mean, you know, my, my father's library was sort of the first place that took me out into the, into, the, into the world. And this is something that I loved about Borges. Borges says that a young writer came to his, uh, to his office to ask for money because he wanted to write a book about some place, I don't know if it was Paris or India, a place that he had never seen. And Borges said, just stay at home and imagine it. That's really what traveling is all about. So, I mean, this opening through books, the idea that literature makes you travel, the fact that, you know, I, I, I went for over three years, I went over Proust uh, à la recherche du temps perdu. And I can tell you that not only it's a cathedral, not only I love the book, and I really absolutely, but what I have now, two years later, is this sense of longing. I want to go back to that part. I've never been there. I mean, I've been in Paris. I have never been in Paris 1909 or 1907 in the living room of Swan, looking at like the light fall through. I, I don't, I was not there, but the feeling that I was in that space, that I have spent time there is, is precious to me. Though that's something that you're stealing from that generation. And the problem is that in my mind is that the US is already a very parochial society. So what you're doing is increasing this parochialism and forming a type of, nationalism that really is reduced to a very, very, very small space. The last thing I want in literature is to read about myself. Right. The last thing I want is to read about myself. Right. Right. It, it really does shrink the world, doesn't it? I, um, I, I heard about a Nigerian political scientist who came to the United, uh, came to the United States or Canada who uh, was looking for a job and asked for advice from somebody who's known to be critical of this ideology, how do I make sure that um, I don't violate the norms of the political science department at my university? And I just thought that was so unbelievably ironic. Here you have somebody who who's a Nigerian Muslim who has a completely different set of experiences who has to fit into this sort of um, academic monoculture in a, in a US or Canadian university? Well, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, I have had, um, you know, my business partner for five years. I mean, my, my, my essentially first operation in political consulting that I've done for 15, 20 years, uh, we worked together in um, a couple of uh, a couple of campaigns. One of them in, in Africa, in West Africa. I mean, it's a, a Haitian lawyer, uh, in New York, I mean, through my college career, being an international student, you know, several of my friends were Africans. Uh, and the relation of these kids, uh, obviously my partner was an adult and could really fence for herself, but the kids in college 
the encounters with the, with a lot of the college African American community and the encounter of these tensions uh, was really quite remarkable. I mean, you know, things were told to my my Ghanaian friend in particular that I I you know I would be ashamed of thinking, uh, and they were essentially not of they were not racial attacks although they had racial form, uh, but they were actually xenophobic attacks, right? They were about this guy from Ghana that came from the wild and came from the wild, just like I came from the wild, right? Argentina, what is there? I mean, obviously this is the same crap that you hear from people in Manhattan when they tell, when you tell them that you're gonna move to Queens. It's like, well, are you gonna be safe there? Do you think it's gonna be, are you gonna be okay living in Queens? I mean, it's this attitude, right? Which is, which is very curious, uh, but obviously, I mean, in that kind of context and in that kind of situation becomes a lot more ominous. Um, I think that this is not really, you know, something that um, has an easy solution because I think that what you are coming into the academic system with is with the idea that you are really in the in the in the space that has inherited sort of the freedoms of which Schiller speaks in the in the in the in the in the letters on the on the aesthetic education of man, mm-hmm. and which is basically you can have truth oppressed. The king can talk, but ultimately, truth will come back to hand him. Mm. The fact will preserve. So, so, what do, so what do we do about this? Uh, I've heard you talk a little bit about it. And, and you know, I, I think I might have on a clubhouse mentioned that, you know, I struggle with how you fight against illiberalism. Do you use the rules of liberalism, which is to always respect every point of view, um, to fight illiberalism, or do we need to fight by the same rules that that the people who are imposing this ideology on society are using? How do we how do we deal with this now? Look, let me let me take exception with that. I don't think that the, the position of liberalism, and certainly not. I mean, I think that if I have to explain who I am, I certainly don't want to use the term classical liberal, which is something that now has been associated with certain type of libertarian libertarian republicanism. What I would say is that I'm a, I'm a staunch, a staunch uh, participant in the project of enlightenment. Right. And the project of enlightenment is not, uh, and I think this is really what, what Republican, Republican uh, forms of governance and forms of polity inherit, inherit. I don't think that the enlightenment project is in any way grounded in the respect for any idea. I think that the Enlightenment project is grounded on the sufficient respect for the individual that their stupidity will be challenged with ideas that are presumed to be better. And because this is actually a mirror's game, then what we enter into is essentially a contract of deliberation. I think that this is no longer the case within the woke machine in academia. Academia has been lost. I mean, there are redacts where they cannot come fully in but I have heard, I mean, with, you know, with, uh, with no reservations, people say, for instance, that there are absolutely no reasons why science should ask questions about, uh, you know, racial differences, for instance. I mean, I think that most people that seriously study, uh, you know, genetic, genetic recessive disorders, for instance, cell anemias, 
like you know the ones that are pertain to say Ashkenazi Jews or the ones that pertain to black uh, 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 black communities would would beg to disagree. Would think that you know Tycho Brahe or or, or or sickle cell is a very important thing to to understand and to understand why is it that is predominantly a black problem. Uh, because we want to save black lives, right? Uh, so black lives matter in that case too. I don't think that they're fully there, but I think it's very clear that they are almost there and that there are departments and their entire areas, sociology, the humanities by and large literature that had been essentially lost. Lost and, you know, it's the voice of reason no longer prevail. I think that the bigger issue that I see is uh, constant bullying in sort of a, a situation of uh, extreme pressure uh, where people, you know, can really be, and, and this was also part of my conversation with, with, our, with our colleague, uh, Kevin, Kevin Hauser, was that, you know, this is not just a game in which people are sort of deplatformed, but they, they can go talk somewhere else. I mean, what we have in many cases is people that are one, complain away from, from uh, you know, from, uh, from um, ah, crap, I'm, I'm missing my, my words here, but are one complaint away from basically being unemployed and having to basically feed their children with scraps and having to figure out a way to make ends meet. So an adjunct professor that is in the situation which, you know, a professor that is enlightened comes down on them they really have two choices or shut up or go stand in the unemployment line. And that threat, that threat, not only to Keith and Kin, but to reputation and to future employment, it's, it's massive. I mean, it's massive. You're not talking about something that is negligible. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, we are clearly and particularly American, uh, the American university is at the, and this, this, by the way, this is also the case for American uh, publishing industries, for the American uh, show business, so on and so forth, because almost everywhere you go, you will find it. I think that the response right now is really fire with fire. I think that my sense of what should happen in the university is that there has to be, first of all, networks of faculty and people concerned that are beginning to build and that are there already in place when these things begin to happen. Because by the time they come down on you, it's already too late. You cannot start organizing then. And if you're going to have to go into a lawsuit, if you're going to have to afford like a lawyer, if you're going to have to, you know, find a way to feed your family or protect your job, then that's not something that you can do overnight, much less if you're an adjunct or if you're lower in the ranks. And we cannot all be Jordan Peterson, obviously. So we're, you know, we're, we're not in that kind of position. That means that the, the safety nets have to be there. And I think that the main instrument that these networks have to start really using very, very seriously is uh, strategic, strategic lawsuits, strategic lawfare. They have to go in and they have to make it clear, not only to other faculty members um, who should be sued. I mean, I, I think that, you know, suing people individually and finding the lawyer that will be willing to do it is a sufficient threat to actually stop the intention. But I think that the ultimate responsible parties to this are actually administration. So I think that this is sort of an important fact. I don't think that this is a product of the left. I think that this is the left in a parasitary manner using basically what has been the Reaganite project of American clientelism translated to the university. So this is something that I think I mentioned in the clubhouse conversation. I think that what you have is, that administration understands 
that there is no better client than a happy client. And this means that the academic modeling, which you're gonna hear tough truths, because what we're here is to educate you, not to entertain you, is gone. Because what we now want are happy students that go to their parents and ask them for more money or go to the government and sign on the dotted line for another loan or for another, for another financial support extension. And that will go to the administration. It's consistent with the massive growth of administrations. So I think that what you have is a symbiosis of very ugly forces clientelism at the, at the level of the administration and paying students that actually not only find that they're entitled customers, but that actually they now are, have ostentatious power when they even walk into classrooms. I mean, I mentioned this before, I'll mention it again. I am told re uh, regularly by faculty members in Europe that their biggest tormentor, their biggest source of fear are 18 and 19 year old American foreign students that will come in, will sit in the front row, and then they will tell them what authors they can teach, what authors they cannot. What photographer is a racist, what photographer is a, is a, is a, homoph a homophobe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, just think about the transference of power for an 18-year-old that comes fresh out of a Tupperware to be sitting in a classroom and be able to call not only curricular shots, but essentially define the job expectancy of a faculty member. Mm. So that power had to be bestowed. And obviously that was bestowed by a certain amount of financial muscle. Obviously what they have to pay for that is usually a lifetime of debt for those 15 years of 15 minutes of pleasure over for a year. So I think that that system is something that really has to be broken apart and starts with breaking down administrations. Let me just say this last thing faculty bodies have shown themselves to be absolutely incompetent in doing politics. This is why I never read them on policy because they simply have not, there is not one single case I know in the American academic system at least in which there is a serious and well thought out policy position by faculty members that has actually managed to modulate this. What they do is now faculty members accept the administration invitation to sit down and resolve discussion and resolve the issues with students in common meetings, which are therapy meetings. Why should a 50 year old faculty member with expertise go sit down, have a therapy discussion, a therapeutic discussion with a 19 year old that feels offended because of an author that was presented? So I think that the, the problem is the woke machine is perverse. And there are a lot of people that are actually leading off of this thing. People like D'Angelo, people like, you know, Kendi, people like uh, uh, Taneshi Coates. I mean, essentially intellectual dwarves, all of them, but nonetheless that have amassed an enormous amount of power through the pages of the New York Times and the machine coming out of academia. And academia has actually built those incubators by essentially fostering an atmosphere of client satisfaction above anything else. Martin, I think you've pointed out something really important, which is it's it's you know just the the irony of the capitalist framework of the university system. It's that capitalist framework that supports the woke machine or you know the the far left ideologies. Right, it, it, it's two right. ideologies that should be in opposition to one another, but they're feeding 
off each other. Well, look, I, I'm 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 a happy I'm a happy market economy guy. So I mean, I'm not a happy market economy guy in the American sense. Uh, I'm a happy market guy in the Danish sense. Uh, you know, in the sense that I want a very strong market, and as far as uh, as I'm concerned, that means very strong regulation. What does strong regulation brings to us? Well, it doesn't bring somebody that has done neuro ketchup to sit in front of a class and sell me neuro ketchup as serious neuroscience. That is a force of regulation. The problem with a market that is absolutely unregulated, I mean, the problem of this sort of Wild West capitalism in the context of the university is exactly what you have just described. Because make no mistake about it, the woke machine is insanely profitable, insanely profitable. Never before have we had this number of people just being turned in and out through academic systems with almost no requirements. I mean, I don't know if you saw this this week. Princeton has done away with Greek and Latin for undergraduates in classes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you know, this is a question that I was discussing with, uh, with an acquaintance in France who does uh, have two acquaintances in France who both of them do um, do classics, our classics uh, researchers and scholars. My conversation with one of them uh, was, I was asking, I mean, just think that, imagine for a second that these were pre-med and not classics. Would you let this guy go into med, med school coming from the US, coming from Princeton, would you let him go into your med school in France? Would you allow this guy then to practice in France? I mean, ask yourself that question. Would this be acceptable in any other form of discipline in which things are actually serious and are important? And this is supposedly for the sake of creating, creating diversity. But creating diversity, essentially what in this case means is nothing but condescension. But it's a condescension, and back to the, 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 the same point, that is extremely profitable. Look, I mean, now you can also have a degree. Now you can also be Nietzsche. You can also be the guy that actually is an expert in Latin. Well, we cut some corners, so you will not need to know Latin. <laughs> I mean, imagine a pilot that says like, yeah, I mean, I went to, I went to piloting school in Princeton. They just didn't need me. They, they just actually eliminated the requirement of landing. <laughs> right. Oh. So, well, this has been fascinating and I, and I hope we can continue it. I feel like we Anytime. should continue it. Um, there's a lot to think through. Maybe, Monica, as we start uh, thinking through some of these challenging ideas, we know we have Martin as another scholar in residence for us as we uh, struggle out loud with how to, uh, how to deal with these problems and, and how to think about them. Um, so thank you so much for uh, spending this uh, hour with us. Really appreciate it. It's been it's been a pleasure. It's been absolutely a wonderful way to spend my five thirty to six thirty uh, gap. Yes, indeed. Thanks, right. Martin. Have a very good evening, and uh, send my regards to Broadway as well.